eschatology. Eschatology meaning the end times or last things. We are going to deal with that next year. All right. Over the past six months, I'm going to tell you why I've become increasingly concerned about the, the body of Christ, but more specifically about this local church. And let me tell you the reason for my concern. The reason for my concern stems from a number of conversations that I've had with a lot of you. And if it wasn't a conversation that I've had with you, it's a conversation that I've overheard that you've had. And the conversation is usually giving me indications or conversations that you've had with other people is giving them, which is giving me, indications that many of us do not know how to properly communicate the gospel. We may have believed in the gospel. We may have even we may even be real sincere believers, but our ability to communicate the gospel is not what it should be. And that's my concern. My concern is that you as a believer should be able to easily communicate the gospel to which you believed and to the gospel for which you've been saved. These are uh, revealing, though, these conversations, because it reveals to us, the elders of the church, what direction we need to go in when teaching you what we're teaching you now. The Lord, again, has used these conversations to help direct us to equip the saints. So that's what we're doing tonight. In the time the Lord has uh, saved me, I think I have ventured into many different theological and even non-theological topics thinking, listen now, that I completely understood the gospel. So what I'm doing right now is I'm putting yourself, putting myself alongside of you saying, I've been there as well. That I've been saved and I've jumped into so many different topics without even knowing really how to communicate the gospel. And the, the, the problem was, if you would have asked me, do you know the gospel? I would have obviously said, well, of course I know the gospel. I might have even been offended by you asking me if I know the gospel. Just like some of you might be offended by, by me saying to you, I don't believe you really know how to communicate the gospel. Understand, I'm not saying to you, you're not saved. I'm saying, can you communicate the gospel to someone with clarity? That's what we're going to be doing tonight. So don't get offended if I say, I don't feel like right now the church as a whole can clearly communicate the gospel. Instead, you should be encouraged to say, yes, help me with that, because it will help in my evangelism as I share the gospel with other people. There are people who say, I, know, I want to read the book of Revelation. Why? You don't even know the gospel. Right. Know the gospel first. And if someone were to ask me, hey, what's the gospel? My response might have been like some of your response, which is or which was oh, the gospel is easy for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the gospel. That's the answer that I would have given. And if someone were to ask me. If when I someone was if I was sharing my faith with an unbeliever, if they were to ask me, but explain why that verse is the gospel. Explain why Christ died for us and needed to die for sin. Explain why Christ loved you so much. Explain why Christ wants you to have life. Explain why Christ uh, came for the world. They explain, explain. And I probably would have either been upset 
and said, well, you're just being rebellious. You don't really want to know the gospel. Or I might have just walked away. Because I honestly could not explain even some of those basic answers that I just or questions that I just asked you. Why? Why should we believe the gospel? Why should when you when you are saying the gospel to someone, why should they believe this? Here's another question. How are they to believe this? Here's another question. When must they believe the gospel? Here's another one. Where must they start if they pursue Christ after believing the gospel? And then what must they do? There's a lot of different questions. And these questions, as I said before, would have been overwhelming to me if they would have been asked to me maybe even five years ago. What about you? If someone was to come to you and say, so I've been hearing this word gospel a lot. What does it mean? What is it? What is gospel? What would you say to them? Where would you begin? If you were to begin to share the gospel with someone, where would you begin? And here's another question. And then how would you end? Are you thinking? This series is meant to equip you with these answers. It's hopefully going to be interactive so that you can ask questions, but I'd like you to wait till the end. Let me encourage you and also warn you at the same time as we go through the series. This teaching will do you no good if you simply learn all of these facts and don't intend to share them. The purpose of the gospel and evangelism series is for you to know the gospel and for you to do evangelism, for you to share the gospel. We'll spend a few weeks learning the gospel, then spend a few more weeks uh, and even more time explaining how to communicate this truth in unique settings that God has placed you in. Whether that be in your workplace, whether that be in your home, whether that be among family members. So our job, our responsibility, our goal is to help you be so equipped with the gospel that you can share it in any setting. Amen. So tonight... We'd like to begin first with a brief explanation of the gospel. Actually, we'll begin with what the gospel is not. And then we'll start with an explanation, the definition of the gospel. And then we'll begin to explain what is the gospel. All right. So can we start now? You can put it up. (laughs) I did this for you guys. okay? but here's what I don't want you to do. And we were even thinking about not recording this because it is going to be choppy. I am going to stop a lot, but hopefully it'll be helpful to some people. Don't focus so much on this that you don't hear what I'm saying. All right. I know that when we do notes, you're just looking and you're copying down. And some of you don't know how to look and listen at the same time. (laughs) So this is going to be good practice for you. All right. So let's start with first what the gospel is not. Number one point or one A. The gospel is not that you are okay. The gospel is not that you are okay. Now, that may seem like an odd thing to say, but the reality is that many people attend church thinking that it is meant to tell people how good they are, how okay they are. That sermons are intended to be more like therapy sessions where the preacher is more like your therapist. And the seats that you're sitting on are the couch that you lay on and express all of your worries, all your fears. And the therapy makes you feel better about all of them. Or the therapist makes you feel better about all of them. That it's not your fault 
that you are a product of the environment that raised you. It's not your fault. You need to, to understand the, the inner strength that is inside of you. It's just there waiting for you to tap into it. Church is supposed to be a place that helps you cope with this fallen world or this falling apart world that has not yet realized their inner strength that they possess. This is the opposite of what the Bible teaches, though, isn't it? The Bible teaches that our first parents, Adam and Eve, has, has, were seduced into sin and we have all been seduced along with them. Therefore, we are all sinners. The world is falling apart because fallen people live in the world. Not because we are good and we're just waiting to tap into some good. Therefore, we are not okay. We are not righteous. We're not good. And we are separated from God because of our sin. In fact, our sin is so serious that John chapter 3, verse John chapter 3, Jesus teaches that we need a new birth. First Corinthians, Paul taught that we also need a, that we need a new, need to be created anew. Mine says new birth, but it's supposed to be created anew. Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. So we are not okay. By any means are we okay. We'll talk about that point more next week. Number two, the gospel is not simply, this is a big one, that God is love. Listen closely. The gospel is not simply, and I, I put simply in parentheses because God is love, but it's not simply that God is love. You may have heard this point spoken by even non-believers. Well, God is love. And usually they make the point that God is love because they would like to believe that God is not going to punish them for the sins that they are at that moment committing. Isn't it funny when you talk to an unbeliever and they usually will go straight to the passage that makes them feel better about their sin? Well, God is love. Now, God is love. As if that is their exit. That is their safety net. That they're going to be okay because God is love. So they cling to that passage. Usually without having the slightest clue of the meaning of that passage or even the slightest idea of where that passage is in the Bible. You should ask them, where is that in the Bible? It's in there. Right next to God loves those who love themselves and God loves those who help themselves. God is love. You should ask them this. When they say God is love, ask them this question. God is love. Good. Therefore. And then let them answer that. If they say God is love, agree with them. God is love. Comma, therefore. What do you mean by that? Right. What what are you implying when you say that God is love or to say that the gospel is God is love? What are you saying that because God is love, he will not punish anyone for their sin? Is that what you're saying? Because God is love, therefore, all people are saved in spite of their unbelief and their sin. Is that what you're saying by God is love? What exactly do you mean by God is love? It's a great question to ask. We're not saying that God is not loving. We are saying that there is something missing, though, to that description. It would be like, and I think I wrote this on there, it would be like reading the front cover of a newspaper magazine or a newspaper that says, People died today, only to open up the rest of that newspaper and see empty pages. 
Well, that's a fact that people did die today, but some of the some of the details concerning how, when, where, and why they died are missing. It may be true that God is love. But why is he love? How do you know that he is love? What has he done to show you that he loves you? Think about this. When people say God is love, ask them, do you what do you think then that love of God must look like? Since you believe that God is love, what does the love of God look like? Ask them to explain. We do too much defending. We do too much backtracking. And they're asking you all these questions. You should ask them questions. Make them be the people who need to find the answers. You might want to ask them this. Is love all the Bible says about the character of God? Or is love the only attribute of God? You ever thought about that? When someone says God is love, say, really, and what else? Well, what do you mean, what else? Is that the only characteristic of God? Ask them. And then ask them about themselves. Are you only ugly? No. Are you only sweet? Well, no. Right? God is much more than just love. Doesn't the Bible say that God is a spirit? Does it? Yes. How does a spirit love? Doesn't the Bible say that God is holy? Yes, it does. So how does a Holy Spirit love? Doesn't the Bible say that the Lord is one and that he is unique and there is no one like him? Yes, it does. So then how does the only perfect Holy Spirit in the universe love? These are questions you should ask. These are questions you should ask people when they try to simplify the love of God as if that's all it is. Oh, there's much more to that. These are pressing questions. You might even want to ask, how does a jealous God love? The Bible does describe him as jealous, does it not? It does. So how does a Holy Spirit that is also a jealous God, how does he love? I would like you to think about this passage and memorize it. Whenever, when anytime someone says God is love, memorize this passage. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a deep passage. God reveals himself as the God who requires holiness of all who would be in a loving relationship with him. Are you holy? It is the only, it is only in the context of understanding something of the true character of God, his righteousness, his perfection and his holiness that we begin to understand the greatness of the truth that God is love. It's when you begin to understand all of the other characteristics that the love of God starts to make more sense. Third, the gospel is not Jesus wants to be our friend. We've heard this many times. This might be the most popular saying in your and my lifetime that Jesus wants to be your friend. Think about that in the presentation of the gospel. Come to Jesus. He wants to be your friend. Is that the gospel? I was sharing the gospel with one of my unsaved family members and I brought up to him his standing with Christ. What is your relationship with life right now with Christ? His response, Isaiah, was, that's my dude. We're super cool. That's my dude. We're super cool. Well, Jesus is not his dude and they're not super cool because my cousin is living in sin. 
That's the approach that people often give. Come to Jesus. He wants to be your friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's not the gospel. That the gospel is not that Jesus wants to be our friend. The gospel is not about a great relationship that you can even have with Christ. Jesus did not leave glory, become a human, made in human likeness, just to tell us that our sins are no big deal and that he just wants to be our buddy. No, that is not the gospel. What would that do, think about this, to the holiness of God or the morality of God if God simply winked his eye at sin just so that he could be your friend? It would be a compromise of his holiness. Real sins have been committed, friends. Real guilt exists. Real separation is the result of our sin. Whether we know it or not, we stand apart from Christ because of our sin. Jesus, though, is the sin-bearing, cross-carrying, death-conquering Savior of the world. He isn't just a friend to those who have repented and placed their faith in him alone for salvation. He is so much more. By his death on the cross, Jesus Christ has become the lamb that was slain for us. He's become our redeemer, the one who has made peace between us and God. He has taken our guilt upon himself. He has conquered our most deadly enemy, sin. And he has subsided the wrath of God. Next, the gospel is not being good for goodness sake. That's the mistake that many people make. That the gospel is going to clean you up. Just be good. As a matter of fact, parents teach a a form of this. It's this moralism thinking that it is the gospel. They raise their kids assuming that because their kids are not in jail or on drugs that their kids are saved. Just because your kids are Doing good according to human standards does not mean that they're saved. The gospel is not about right living. The gospel message is not that we should live moral lives. And that's what people think of Christians, that they're the goody two-shoes who just want to do good. That may be one of the results of the gospel. That is not the gospel, though. Mistakenly, this is why some of you feel that it's easier for you to take the gospel message into the ghetto than to the suburbs, because you feel... Like you can see the immorality at MLK, but you can't see the immorality at the marketplace. So we go to the to the MLK, Martin Luther King Park, and we say, well, that's a drug dealer. That's a drug addict. That's a drunkard. That's a prostitute. That's a gang member. They need Christ. I can see that they not that they're not living right. But you could go to the marketplace and see the same exact thing. They just live in a better condition. Do you know how many drunkards we pass by at the marketplace? Do you know how many drug addicts are, that are at the marketplace? Do you know how many fornicators that are, uh, that are at the marketplace? Oh, there are plenty. They just haven't reached or fallen financially at the level of the MLK park. But the MLK has been at the suburbs before. They remember those days. You could sit there and they'll tell you the stories. I remember the time when I used to have so much money. I remember the time when I used to have houses and cars. I might have passed them at the marketplace thinking that they were okay. And now I feel the need to speak to them at MLK. No. We call them to get off drugs. We call them to stop their drinking, to stop their abuse, or whatever it may be. But we rarely call them to repent. And that's what the gospel calls us to do. To repent. 
not so that they can get off of whatever vice they are addicted to, but so, so that they can be forgiven of the same things that you and I needed to be, be forgiven of. The same thing you and I needed to be forgiven of, sin. This Christian life is not about keeping the Ten Commandments or living by the golden rule or volunteering at the homeless shelter, giving water to people when it's hot. Don't you love when you see the Christians at certain churches that I won't say their names who talk about it was hot. So we went out and gave people water. Praise God. You're saved. Just makes you feel good about yourself. Well, praise God. I'm glad you felt good about giving someone who was hot some water, but that's not the gospel. You may have given them water to to get through a hot Bakersfield day, but they're still going to hell because you've not called them to repent and believe in Christ. So as one minister said, it's like putting band-aids on bullet wounds. The gospel is the wonderful good news that comes to the world and is heard and believed by those whom God's spirit sovereignly works in his sheep, opening up their eyes so they can understand their desperation before him, their need before him. What kind of response should that kind of gospel induce? What should you do when you understand your sense of need, when you understand Christ and God and it all comes together? What should you do? What should be the response? Stop drinking. Stop cussing. Stop fornicating. Well, those may follow. But the initial thing you do is repent and believe in Christ alone for your salvation. There are young people sitting here this morning or this evening. You need to repent and believe in Christ. Your parents may want you to be be good, but that's the least of your problems. You need to repent and believe in Christ. And then the good will follow. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Once people have heard the truth about their sin and God's holiness, God's love in Christ, and Christ's death and resurrection for our justification or innocence... The gospel calls for one response. What is that response? Is it to walk down an aisle? No. You, you know where the walk down the aisle came from. I share this with the, the guys of the race. Walk down the aisle came from the 17th century, 18th century, Charles Finney. They would have what's called the morning seat. And as he preached, he would say, if any of you are feeling guilty right now, come and sit at the morning seat and we'll pray for you so that you can receive Christ. That turned into the altar call. It's not biblical. So is it walking down the aisle? Is it lifting a hand? Is it signing a card? Is it having hands laid on you or repeat a prayer? Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. It's done. You did it. Angels in heaven are celebrating. Oh, I've made that mistake. I've made the mistake of where I've led someone in a prayer and said, you prayed that. Now, you've got to understand what's happening in heaven. It's going crazy right now. And they go, really? Yeah, that's great. And they walk away, continuing their sin. And I go home and say, hey, someone got saved today. They didn't bear no fruits of salvation. Not at that moment. Hopefully they did later. But the gospel is not repeat a prayer, sign a card, walk down an aisle. The gospel is Acts 20, 21, Mark 1, 15. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So those are just a few things of what the gospel is not. Wow. So let's go to a definition of the gospel and then an introduction to the gospel. Do we have time for that? Let's see. Number two, definition of the gospel. 
The word gospel comes from an old English God, meaning good, and spell, meaning news or story. The Greek word is evangelion, which means good news. Good news. How would you explain the good news? If you could do it in just a few moments, how would you explain the gospel? Let's say you had 30 seconds with a a sinner, someone who was on their way to hell, and God had afforded you the opportunity. Let's say that they were on their way to death row, and they were about to sit in the electric chair, but they gave you one minute to speak to them before they went to that chair. How would you explain the gospel to them? Do you see the desperation there? You may not know this, or maybe you will know this, but you should be approaching people when you share the gospel with them as if they are on their way to the electric chair, and you've got one minute to share the gospel with them. How would you do it? What kind of desperation would you do or have? What kind of passion and fire would you share the gospel with? If you knew that you have one minute to share the gospel with them, and then when you leave them, they may see the end of their life. But God has placed you in their path for that very moment. For the purpose of sharing the good news. How would you do it? Here's a few examples. Max Stiles says the gospel is the joyful message from God that leads us to salvation. That's okay. Tim Keller says the gospel... Is that God centered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could not achieve for ourselves, which now converts and transforms individuals, forming them into a new humanity and eventually will renew the whole world and all creation. This is the good news, the gospel. That's all right. R.C. Sproul said the gospel is God is holy and you're not. So what are you going to do about it? (laughs) That would kind of freak me out. I think Mark Deborah hits it on the head, though. The good news is that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we will be born again into a new life and eternal life with God. I think that's a great explanation of the gospel. And if you'd like, I can get that to you. But that is a clear explanation, concise explanation of what the gospel is in all of its facets. This is the gospel. So what do we do then? Do we memorize that paragraph and hope for the best when it comes time to share that our memory is there still? I don't think so. I think that there are truths about the gospel that are clear, and it's our job to understand how they all fit together so that we can express or communicate the gospel. So how would we explain the gospel? Let's ask this question. Where do we start? Here's where we start. We start with God. If you're ever going to share the gospel with someone, start with God. Begin with God. 
There is no better place to start than with God. Why? Because God is the beginning of all and he's the end of all. Or he is the beginning of all and the culmination of all. Where does the Bible start? With God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. Genesis, uh, John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Revelation twenty two twelve. I am the Alpha, which means the beginning. So when we start to share the gospel, we start with God. Now, what about God? God is holy. God is holy. When we start sharing the gospel and we go to someone and say, I'd like to share the gospel with you. Okay, go for it. Let me tell you that God is holy. Wow. The holiness of God is one of the most overlooked truths about God. And it may be the most overlooked or ignored attributes of God because his holiness exposes our sinfulness. So we run from that. It's the holiness. The holiness is the attribute. Holiness of God is the attribute of God that caused it caused Adam to run when he heard God walking in the garden. The holiness of God, it caused the face of Moses to shine like the sun after seeing the presence of God and his holiness. The holiness of God caused Isaiah to fall on his face and beg for mercy as he sees the Lord and his train fills the temple. The holiness of God caused the blind eyes of Paul or caused Paul to be blind for three days and caused Paul, once that blindness was removed, to give up his life for the gospel. It was the holiness of God that to this day causes angels to surround the throne of God and day and night they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What is holiness? Holiness is pure. Holiness is perfection. Holiness is completeness. Holiness is without need or being without need. Holiness is being without error or without sin. And God is holy. Oh, gosh, I I suggest two books here that I I was reading in preparation for this sermon. The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink and The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I suggest these two, especially A.W. Pink's chapter in the holiness of God will just floor you. And I, I just wanted to do the whole night on the holiness of God. But when you begin to share the gospel, you start with God. And what about God? God is holy. The holiness of God is so central to the teachings of the Bible that it is said of God in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, 19. His name is holy or holy is his name. His name is holy because he is holy. A.W. Pink says he is frequently styled or called the Holy One. He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolutely pure, unsullied, even in the shadow of sin. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 Holiness is the very divine or very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness. God is holy. And my God, if you could just go home tonight and contemplate on the holiness, the perfection, the purity of God. And just worship him in light of his holiness. When you're introducing the gospel, you must begin with the holiness of God. 
Because it will be the backdrop to the understanding of our humanity and our need for Christ, the Holy One of Israel. Meaning this, you understand that God is holy and that you're not and why you need Christ. Number two, God is holy. Number two, God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God is holy. And the holy God went on to create stars and planets, moon, sun. He went on to create water, trees, vegetation, animals, birds, fish. And then you and me. God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens and over the livestock and over every and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them. God, who is holy, made you and me. He's our creator. Now, don't fall asleep, because as you're sharing the gospel, here's the point. You start with God. God is holy and God created you and me. We are made in the image of God. We are made image bearers of God. And we were made with communicable attributes or the same attributes as God. There are communicable attributes and then there are incommunicable. So there's communicable, which means attributes alike, and then incommunicable, which means attributes that are not alike. God created you with communicable attributes that are like this. You can reason. You can love. You can choose. You can feel. Those are attributes that God has that he shares with you. Incommunicable attributes are attributes that you don't share with God. You are not everywhere at once. You're not omnipresent. You're not all powerful. You're not omnipotent. You're not all knowing. These are incommunicable attributes that God does not share with you. These only belong to God and more. Does that make sense? So God has created you in his image. He's made you an image bearer. He actually created you sinless. He created mankind sinless. There was no sin in man. There was no flaw in man. We were made holy. We were made perfect. Our forefather, Adam, was given a number of commands, but let's go through a few of them. Genesis 1:28. This is known as the first great commission. God blessed them and command and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And then he gives them another command. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So he gives him commands. He's made. God is holy. God creates man, makes him in his image. This is how simply you share the gospel. God is holy. He created you and I. He made us in his image. He gave us commands. What are those commands? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Work the garden. Take care of it. Expand the garden of Eden to the very ends of the earth. Eat from all these trees. They're all yours. But don't touch that one. That one's not yours. Don't eat of that. Because God is creator, he has the right to command his creation to do whatever he wants them to do. Or whatever he's created them to do. We were created to do what? To worship him. To love him and to obey him. He also has the right to judge and to punish his creation when they fail to do what he's created them to do. So here's the point. God is holy. God is creator. God made you and I. He made us perfect and holy. He created us to love him, 
to worship him and to obey him. And he gave us a few commands. This approach is the approach that you take when you share the gospel. See how, how the beginning begins to formulate? But do you see where it's going when he says, when I say, he's given us a few commands. Did God, did man obey the commands of God? We know that. We know the answer is no, he didn't. Genesis chapter 3 details our disobedience to the command that God gave his created beings. We'll go into more in depth to that next week. But we know that man disobeyed God. Therefore, God, since he's creator, is also judge. Last point, judge. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19 describes the punishment from God because of our sin. Why does God have the right to execute such punishment? What gives him the right to be judge over the sin that man committed in the garden? What gives him the right to be judge over that? Do you, do you think about this? When Adam sins, they literally have a court case. He calls Adam, Eve, and Satan, and there is no jury. He is judge and jury. And he has them stand before him as judge. Tell me what you did, and I will execute punishment. Why does he get to do that? Because he's the creator. He made them. And he's God. And he's holy. So for the one who is holy, he gets to execute judgment on the one who is not. God is holy. And and that responsibility only falls on God, by the way. James 4.12 says, there is only one lawgiver. And judge, the one who is able to to save and destroy. Psalm 75, 5, God is judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Isaiah 33, 22, Isaiah 66, 16, 2 Timothy 4, 8. They're all up there. Can you see them? And many, many more. I wrote, et cetera, et cetera, because there's so many more. I just stopped. I think there was like 60. And I was like, OK, they get the point. Why is the judgment of God necessary to bring up? Because as we are going to see next week, Adam is our federal head, meaning this. Adam stood as the representative of all humanity. When Adam sinned, he sinned on all of our behalf. So we fell in Adam, as Romans chapter 5, verse 12 describes. In Adam, all died. Because of one man's disobedience, all became sinners. What is the problem with sin? Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Here's the point now. God is holy. God is creator of you and me. He made us in his image. He made us to love him, to worship him, to obey him. But we fail to obey him. We sin against the holiness of God. And that sin has created separation between us and God. Do you see where you're going now? See how the gospel is starting to be introduced? So you need to understand or you need to explain this bad news. Because this bad news is really bad news. And God is really good. It's going to come full circle. Are we are we tracking together? He's hitting your face from you so that he does not see you or hear you or so that he's not hear you. We've been separated from God because of our sin. This, my friends, is the beginning of the gospel. God is holy. God is creator and God is judge. 
And we presently stand under that judgment if we have not repented and placed our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. So you could even begin there. That last sentence, go back, uh, sis. I almost called you honey, but you're not my wife, I think. God is holy. God is creator. God is judge. You could start there with the gospel. And we presently stand under that judgment if we... Thanks, speech. Have not repented and placed our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. There we click it. There you go. <laughs> if we have not placed our faith in Christ alone for our salvation, that's an easy right there. Next week, we're going to talk about man. So, this week, introduction in God. Next week, man. The following week, Christ. The following week, how are we saved? The last week, what's the cost? <coughs> this is the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel. And we're going to keep formulating a, a running explanation of what this is. Let's pray. Not too bad. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your.